stay hungry, stay foolish. Welcome back to Bias Interrupted Part 2 with Joan C. Williams. Don't forget you can win a copy. Sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter where you will be in the hat to win a copy of this brilliant book. Before we start, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai Boley, transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and transfer funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into part two of Bias Interrupted. Okay. Welcome back. It's good news. Joan C. Williams is back with us again to join us for her brilliant book, Bias Interrupted. Joan, welcome back. Delighted to be here. It's great to have you still with us. And I want to jump straight into culture fit. A term again that I hadn't heard of that I learned from you is the teddy bear effect. Culture fit is a hard one because I mean, as someone who runs an organization, I think culture fit is really important. Um, on the other hand, you need to find to define culture fit in terms of work dispositions and skills, not in terms of what I call the lunch test or the squash test. Do I would I like to play, have lunch with this person or does this person play squash? Um, if you don't define culture fit and pin down what you mean by it in terms of work dispositions, you're gonna it's gonna end up being the lunch test. And um, I mean, for example, golf, you know, 70% of the people who play golf in the United States are men. So if you spend your interview talking about golf and figure this guy would be a great fit, there's a pattern. There's a pattern to that. Um, so uh, on the, uh, the other part of culture fit, um, this actually links back to something we said in the last hour, the teddy bear effect, is that... Um, uh, remember that gentleman who said to me, nobody gets ahead here unless he's everyone's best friend. This was a, a black gentleman in the U.S. Um, and um, there's a, an amazing study by Robert Livingston, who, by the way, also has a great book on diversity and inclusion. And what Robert found, he, he did something so clever. He studied the photographs of CEOs, black and white. And he found that white CEOs tend to look like a CEO from central casting, sort of square jaw, very mature looking face. But black CEOs tended to have to be baby faced um, and maybe a bit goofy, like President Obama, you know, with the ears. Um, and the reason he posited and uh, is that black people need to send out signals that will make white people comfortable with them. And you can either do that by ev being everybody's best friend, or you can do that by having kind of a baby unthreatening face. Um, and so that's what's called the teddy bear effect. Uh, and it just shows you how deep um, this goes. And again, that's kind of a tightrope issue where unconsciously we sometimes feel that, um, that being deferential for certain groups is the price of being seen as reasonable. And if you're not deferential, then you're intimidating. If you're a black man, you're feisty. If you're a Latina in tech here in Silicon Valley, and if you're a white woman, God bless you, just a bitch. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Somebody speaks up in a meeting and you know, they're considered that way. And as I said to you, Joan, I find the same in 
people in innovation by their very nature they're more rebellious and they should be and they should be feel free and psychologically safe enough to speak up but often they're ostracized for that very reason and that's what they're there for it's just it's mind-boggling but let, let's bring it to some more of the tightrope effects that happen so we mentioned how the squash effect or playing golf can be a problem for people who don't but also then there's nights out there's sex talk that happens in the office and this obviously makes some people feel uncomfortable whether they can feel free to speak up about that but also excludes a lot of people for example if you have children having a night out is a very difficult thing to do absolutely um i mean i i can just remember once that we i in a faculty uh I noticed that all of the faculty candidates were being brought in at 5.30. And I just said to the gentleman who was running it, a colleague of mine, a very nice guy, I said, did you notice that like the parents aren't here? <laughs> and he went, oh my God, I never thought about that. And he rescheduled them. He rescheduled the meetings from then on at like four, but he never thought about it. He had a stay-at-home wife. Why should he think about it? Um, so... Um, Nights out when they involve drinking, too, which happens a bit in your country and in mine, um, put women in a really awkward situation. You know, if they um, they drink a lot uh, and, you know, to show that they can really hold their liquor, then um, they may be seen as giving permission to people around them to get a little too friendly. But if they don't drink, then they're uptight. Uh, and so you just put women in a really awkward situation. The same is true with sex talk, although there's another interesting element of that. There's a wonderful study by Jennifer Birdall and co-authors that uh, about sex talk at work. And this is just like sexual joking kind of things, not, you know, gross things like groping. Um, but it, they found that, um, first of all, Virtually no women like sex talk at work, a uh, very low percentage, not surprising. But what was surprising is that less than half of men like sex talk at work. It makes them feel uncomfortable, too. And that even employees who said they enjoyed it um, showed poorer workplace outcomes, both in terms of personal mental health, depression, anxiety, and in terms of workplace effectiveness. So um, Sex Talk at Work, Fun or Folly is the name of the article. And um, sad to say, it's folly. There's plenty of great places for sex talk. Work isn't one of them. <laughs> yeah, but and again, as you say, people might not feel psychologically safe enough to pipe up and talk about it and call it out or may not have a way to do it. That's the other thing. But let, let's bring it into, so beyond, say, women having problem in the workplace, there's also, you know, I often think of the image of Gordon Gecko, this kind of dramatically, you know, tough guy image. And many organizations have that tough guy image of, you know, displays of peacocking or masculinity. And you say masculinity contest cultures enshrine a specific strand of peacocking as the coin of the realm. Researchers have identified four basic elements of such cultures which are correlated with each, each other and with organizational dysfunction. One, show no weakness. Two, stamina and strength. Three, work devotion. And four, worst of all, possibly, is dog eat dog. Yeah, this is, um, the, the, the surgeons have a, uh, have a joke, um, uh, never unsure, often wrong. <laughs> 
that's 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 work as a masculinity contest. Uh, so, and it's as you can see from that quote, it's often very dysfunctional. Uh, so the dog eat dog, you're right, is um, and we actually see a lot of this in politics in your your country and mine as well, or at least in the UK. I'm not saying in Ireland, but um, that the idea that there's only one big dog here, and that's going to be me. Um, that element of work as a masculinity contest, you know, again, virtually no women can succeed because if a woman tries to be a big dog, God forbid, um, she has a huge personality issue. But, you know, most men are disadvantaged in dog eat dog atmospheres, because if there's only room for the biggest, most people aren't going to be it. Um, um, so the, the strength and stamina and the work devotion in professional workplaces kind of um, cluster tightly together because very often in professional workplaces, the way in a workplace as a masculinity contest culture, the way men show that they are the strongest, most virile people around is by staying up for 36 hours in a row. Like, I'm not tired. I can handle this. Um, and, you know, that that um, that kind of workplace devotion, um, you know, it's uh, it's it, probably fine for low level jobs, <laughs> but it is not functional for jobs where you have to be creative, where you have to be sharp. Um, so if you're focused and, and a study of Silicon Valley where this this work devotion is wild, um, shows that that men who are engaged in that kind of work devotion often are going around <laughs> exhausted and um, they don't delegate properly because um, the way to show that you are the mostest is just to be there all the time. And so it's um, what you're doing is extremely efficient signaling of masculinity and extremely inefficient work, uh, work quality um, on the on the ground. Dog eat dog, work devotion, strength and stamina, show no weakness. That's the often wrong, never unsure. And there was actually a study of a, this is actually of guys on a, um, an oil platform where um, that had a really intense show no weakness so that you could never admit that you were unsure. And consequently, they had a high rate of industrial accidents. Um, and so they actually had a comprehensive culture uh, change initiative where the CEO um, showed weakness to the men and basically said, this is actually a form of strength to be able to admit you're unsure. And they changed the culture and the level of industrial accidents plummeted. It's awful, isn't it? I, I thought about that and um, the, uh, the origin of the word sincere. Sincere comes from the Spanish sincere, which means without wax. And the origin goes back to when sculptors used to create statues and if they made a mistake they'd hide the mistake with wax and i thought about this and i was like kind of going it's incredible that if you don't share the mistake you can't fix it in the future you can't prevent it in the future to your point there and i also speaking of origins of words i love the fact that the word persona comes from the greek for the masks that actors used to wear when you'd have one actor play multiple roles like women couldn't act for example back then and i thought about how that is what happens in the workplace with minority groups oftentimes because you talk about covering 
And you say here covering means changing your appearance, behavior and attitudes to fit into the mainstream. It means avoiding any behaviors that are stereotypical of working class people and not standing up to the casual classism of co-workers, a colleague unthinkingly describing a reality TV star, for example, as white trash, or a certain restaurant chain as redneck. People of color have to cover a lot. First generation professionals of color may have to do it even more than first gen white people. No matter what you are covering is taxing, tiring and isolating. I really that really I felt that in my heart. I felt so empathetic there. It reminded me, Joan, I don't know if you saw this. It's absolutely horrific. A show on Netflix called Them. And it's about a black family that moves into 1950s LA. It's an all white neighborhood. I'll check it out. But their family call to them, the black family call, and they ignore them because they feel they have to fit into the white neighborhood. And I went, that happens in organizations to this very day. That's right. That's part of the tug of war. When, when you're a member of a disadvantaged group, you face really hard decisions about how much to assimilate, how much to um, uh, sort of, you know, if, I would say if it works a boys club, some women just join up. Um, and the same thing happens by race. You know, covering also um, really is often a big factor for um, LGBTQ people, for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, um, because often they face this big decision about whether to come out if you're obviously if you're trans, it's different. But if you're uh, if you're LGBTQ, you know, do you just pass or do you come out? So covering is, um, you know, you, when in order to run an efficient organization, you kind of want people's cognitive resources to be spent on doing the work, just saying. Um, and so uh, requiring this kind of elaborate covering just doesn't make business sense. I thought of the story of Dorian Gray as well, where you're committing all these problems out in public, and then there's the, the portrait in the attic that's rotting away. Except if you're doing this, as you say, it's you rotting away on the inside, you know, it's wrong you feel terrible about it, you don't feel authentic. And as a result, it, it can make you very sick, I'm sure, you know, and regretful about not being yourself and not being able to be yourself as well. And as you say, it's not the person's fault, it's the system that needs to change as well. But let's jump on to an interesting question you pose next, which is can we make progress on DEI without getting all rigid and bureaucratic. This is a fear for a lot of people is going, Oh, not not more rules, especially if you think, for example, a financial institution that's already heavily regulated. And now you're saying I need to bring in more rules. But you talk about this. And again, lots of solutions. Um, it is true that if you hire, for example, just by calling up your old school friends and saying, like, who's really smart, um, that you do need more structure than that, you know, or if you do performance associations by uh, with a basically a big box that says how is this person doing? You do need more structure than that. Um, but as we've talked about, you don't need a lot more structure. Um, you this is a business context. You're supposed to be hiring the best people. You're supposed to be promoting the best people. And in order to do that, you have to describe 
what the job requires in terms of competency and require a couple pieces of evidence. This doesn't necessarily take longer than looking at the the blank box saying, how's this person doing? And so I'm like, well, what should I mention? Um, it actually can be much because it's much more focused. It can be very efficient. Um, but it does, it is real, that level of structure is really, really important to interrupt, as we've talked about, prove it again bias. Um, the, but you don't have to, for example, there's a lot of discussion in the US um, about the Rooney Rule, for example. And the Rooney Rule, which uh, um, originated in the National Football League, was simply the rule that for coaching positions, you had to have at least one person of color if I remember correctly. And actually, um, the, the, the National Football League is um, a little less um, excited about the Rooney Rule ever since they were, <laughs> they were sued by a black um, coach uh, that said that it was a joke. Um, that's a, the kind of rule, um, if, your company, if it's working for your company, God bless, that's great. But that kind of rule, it uh, just asks to be gained. You know, we'll throw this person in there and we'll ignore them. We'll never, we'll never really interview them or never give them an offer and never take them seriously. So a, a lot of these rules that are put in place, um, they're not going to be effective. And the kinds of rules that will be effective, like you actually have to figure out what skills the job requires and see if this candidate has them. Um, even if they take a little more time and they may not, you'll get better business outcomes because they're just good business practice. Uh, and we'll come to neurodiversity and the benefits of that later. Like the, the research is there, like research is there for every gender difference you make, any stereotypical change you make, you get better business outcomes. This is good business. So I won't go into that, because you, you, you give ample research on that. Now, one of the bi biggest difficulty, one of the ones that is, is most hurtful I find is motherhood, because I know people think, you know, overpopulation and stuff like that. It's not the case. The stats show the opposite. We're having less children, less and less women are getting married. And you might kind of go, oh, yeah, that's terrible. Well, if you value your career, it's not because there's massive bias against mothers. And what Joan also shows is, it's not just the mothers that choose to have, it's not just people who choose to have children. It also holds against those who don't, which is incredible as well. So Joan, I'd love you to unpack this. It's an uncomfortable subject, but one that needs to be brought into light. Yeah, I mean, if you think about how we define the ideal worker, it's someone who kind of starts to work in early adulthood and works full time, full force for 40, 50 years straight taking no time off really for anything, um, always available if it's important for work. That perfectly describes one group in the workplace, men married to homemakers <laughs> who have a very old fashioned attitude about um, what their, uh, their relationship to their children. It excludes basically everybody else. It even excludes younger men who increasingly see being involved with children's daily care as part of being a good dad, not just showing up once a year at the Christmas pageant. Um, and it's certainly um, in the front lines of this of who it disadvantages though are, are mothers. Um, <clears throat> there's um, 
this is actually the area of research that my institute uh, initiated. So uh, the famous study gave people identical resumes. It was another one of these identical resume studies. Identical resumes, one listed membership in the Parent Teachers Association, the other did not. The mother was nearly 80% less likely to be hired, um, only half as likely to be promoted. And these were management consultants offered an average of $11,000 less in salary and then held to higher performance and punctuality standards. And so if we, in our studies, that 18,000 person database, if you ask people, um, having children didn't change people's perceptions of my competence and commitment, um, uh, about 80% of women of all races say, yeah, it did change people's perceptions. But the percentage of fathers is much, much, much lower. So mothers really are um, on the brunt of this. And if a mother is indisputably competent and committed and works long hours, then she's seen as a bad mother. So she's a bad person. So she's held with higher performance standards, too. So you kind of get your coming and going. And if a woman doesn't have children, then she see that women without children, this is actually a UK study, work the longest hours of any group, uh, uh, hours of unpaid overtime, because they have no lives. So, of course, we'll dump the work on her. So it kind of, if you're a woman, it kind of gets you, um, whether you're a mother or not. Um, if you're a father, fathers actually earn more than identical men without children unless they actually show up for their families. So if they take leave, um, if they ask for uh, workplace flexibility, they encounter what's called the flexibility stigma. And the flexibility stigma is really a femininity stigma. It's that these men are, who are taking leave or um, working flexible hours are seen as um, more uncertain, less leadership. They're basically seen as too feminine, which means it's in the United States, it's, it's sex discrimination um, against men, but it's sex discrimination. So uh, it's really important um, uh, there is, again, on the, the, the Bias Interrupters website, there are a lot of tools to help address this and kind of give your organization a health check. Um, one is what is a good parental leave policy, um, although, of course, in the U.S., we have kind of the worst, the worst laws in the in industrialized world. So you guys are pr probably in better shape. But I suspect you're not in better shape in one thing, which is that um, the, when an, a CEO tells me we're, I'm really committed to advancing women, the first question I ask him is, do your men take leave and do they take the same amount of leave as the women do? Because if that's not true, then um, the women are probably stigmatized for taking it. And the men are almost certainly encountering, encountering very strong um, pressures not to take it. Like, you know, you have to show your, uh, we hear all the time stories like this, that a young man goes in and says, I want to take my leave, to which I'm legally entitled. And older man says, you know, I, I would think about that. You're, you know, you, here you have to be in it to win it. And if you're not, and if you show you're not, it's, it's going to have permanent effects. Um, and as I always say in the U.S., that, like, that's a, that one sentence is a violation of two federal laws, but not to say that it doesn't happen all the time. And another one you mentioned, and I've experienced this. So when I retired from professional sports, I was I started off as an intern, Joan, because you're 31. 
you're starting off brand new career retired sports is gone and i coached in the interim that was my kind of interim piece my my crossfade across both of those different industries and i did three years so i'd signed up to do three years and then i said i was going to stop and and i got this backlash from certain people and it was because i was they were like on why you're doing great and i was like gonna go no but i haven't seen my newborn child very much in the last two years and and he's growing up and i want to be there and there was this kind of incredulity look on people's face kind of looking at me as if i was mad and kind of going ah well you gotta work like and i was like i know but i can work and i can still be there and as you say there's a real kind of identity threat there because it's like are you saying i was a bad dad back in my day and and i'm gonna go and myself i'm kind of going well times have changed a little bit and this happens all the time because it also happens between women who choose career over not choosing career and choose the children they're also seen as less committed. It's true. And you're right to tie it back to identity threat. It's like, um, so women my age will often say, like, I don't know why you have to go part time. Like, I went full time my whole career and my kids are fine. You know, like, are you calling me a bad mother? And you point out that it happens with men. And, you know, if somebody says, like, you know, are you saying I was a bad father? It's like, no, this isn't about you. <laughs> it's about me. But you're right. I mean, you gave just the right answer of like, you know, times have really changed and expectations have changed. Um, and so, you know, I think um, organizations are really often confused about this for a couple reasons. First of all, in the U.S., 71% of men in the top 1% um, of income are married to stay-at-home wives. So our organization, the men at the top of our organizations, most of them are married to stay-at-home wives. Um, and they literally do not understand um, that the people who are uh, they're supervising have a very different family form with very different family expectations and aspirations. The other reason that organizations are uh, confused is that when often when a woman leaves a company because she's hit the glass ceiling, she will say it's because of family reasons in order not to burn the bridges. But when a man leaves because of family reasons, he will say it's because of a better offer in order not to learn burn bridges. And so organizations get a lot of inaccurate feedback that it's only women who care about these issues. It's so important to call this stuff out, John. You know, one of the drivers of all the work I do is to help people live lives where they won't be regretting decisions they made at the end of their life. And one of the things most people regret is like, why did I choose to work so much, you know, and and to be able to be yourself and be authentic and go for it and be brave enough. And I know it's difficult. I, I know how difficult it is. But I hope that your work and me echoing it here in some way can bring it to more people to make better decisions change organizations because changing the individual is probably the easier part changing the system is a whole different kettle of fish altogether speaking of kettle of fish which is a nice segue i didn't mean to say is uh we we mentioned this earlier on the whole idea of when a bias in the system creates conflicts within it so this becomes people of the same gender or race start vying against each other. It's often politically costly for women or people of color or people from a different class origin 
to identify and support people of their own group, because that's not the group that uh, that little in group we've been talking about that for whom things work very seamlessly. And so, um, for example, uh, for women and people of color, this may be true for LGBTQ, though there's no research. Um, if you support a member of your own group, it may be seen as favoritism. Um, if there's a member of your own group who is competent and there's really only for one of people like you and a valued opportunity, you may be in dead heat competition with that one other person of your own group. Um, or um, if there's somebody from your group who um, doesn't perform well and your group is already seen as not a good fit for this role, it may reflect poorly on you. This is what we call the tug of war. We mentioned it briefly before. But it just shows why in office politics are often a lot more complicated for everybody but people from this narrow in-group. Um, and this is just a, another example. This also happens in the um, maternal wall, for example. If women, it's not just women who stay home and women who continue with their careers. It's like women who go full speed ahead and women who take a little bit more uh, deliberate path and women who go part time, you often see these tug of war conflicts among them. If you're just you're just reinforcing stereotypes that women aren't committed. No, you're just a bad mom. And you often see this again in in um, innovation roles as well, where the innovator might be condoning a new business model and people won't associate with them because they're getting a threat kind of going well if you back that new business model our own business model is gone you're going to lose your job and then you have this kind of ostracization that takes place as a result but one of the things you made me think of was when i was a kid when i was a teenager i was 16 or so i worked in the entire summer to save up and, and buy i wanted to buy record decks you know like for mixing it and stuff like that and recently, my older son had his confirmation here and all the relations, all the his aunties and uncles giving him money. And he earned it. Well, he didn't earn it. <laughs> he got more money in on his confirmation than I did in that entire summer working 40 hours Whoa. a week for the whole summer. And it made me think of something that you mentioned there, that you might have a prior generation who's climbed the ladder in an organization, get to the top and then want to pull the ladder up after them or else see somebody else going through similar battles. And as you say, suck it up, buttercup. I went through it, so can you. That's a phenomenon too. That's that's a direct quote from one of the companies we worked, Somebody, an Asian American woman in one of the companies we worked uh, with said, you know, that women don't support each other. The attitude is suck it up, buttercup. I had to suck it up, you do too. But, and of course, um, by suck it up, you mean um, accommodate to all the biases going on that's going on and not challenge it. It's just like, that's not what this in-group has to do. So that's not right. Let's start moving towards some of the solutions. You give a whole chapter towards the CEO. So really, you need the CEO in any change, in any transformation. You need them to be the driver of that change. And you say here, that many CEOs are understandably frustrated. US companies spend roughly 8 billion a year on DEI initiatives and have little to show for it. Those that idealistically posted their diversity metrics online are now publicly embarrassed by their lack of progress. Here's the bottom line you say, your business systems and climate reflect the people you've already hired. 
So if you want to replicate that workflow force in the future, keep doing what you're already doing. I let you riff on this, Joan, and bring this chapter to life. One message for the CEO is that you can't just hire a head of DEI and give that person a budget for programming and think that you've solved the problem because you haven't. Um, you can't just have employee resource groups, although they're very important, and give them some money for programming and think you've solved the problem. That would be true if the problem were with the women and people of color. And if they could just be upskilled, your problem would be solved. But as we've talked about now, that isn't the problem. The problem is with the business systems that have these subtle forms of bias constantly playing out. So the problem is not to fix the, fix those people. The problem is to fix the business systems. And so you need to, um, if you hire a head of diversity and inclusion, um, you need that person needs authority to change the business systems in a way that will interrupt bias, not just put on you know di National Diversity Day programming, um, which you know is again that's not a bad thing. Um, but it's just not an organizational change tool. It just isn't. The other thing that is extremely important is going back to what I identified up at the top as the single most important finding, which is that 80 to 90% of white men say they have fair access to career enhancing assignments, but much, 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 much lower of any other group. For example, in architects, uh, among architects in the United States, 88% of white men say they have fair access to develop design ideas, talk about innovation. But the percentage for women and people of color was, whoa, a lot, a lot lower. Um, that's a, a very important problem. If you don't solve that problem, you may hire um, a diverse workforce. You will not keep the work, diverse workforce. And it won't be because the mothers, the women have children and their priorities change. It will be because they've hit the glass ceiling and they're good and tired of it. Um, in order to solve that problem of who gets access to the glamour work and who gets kind of stuck with the back office work, what we call the office housework, um, that has, that initiative has to come from the CEO because even if your head of diversity and inclusion has authority to change recruiting, hiring, interviews, um, performance evaluations, all the rest of that, um, it's very unlikely that person will have the authority to change um, managers' ability to uh, channel the good work to whomever they see fit. For that, you have to have the CEO weighing in um, you have to, first of all, as we haven't talked a lot about metrics, but you have to count. <laughs> you have to see who's getting the good work. And if you're, if you are not keeping track of who is getting those career enhancing assignments, I will hazard a very well-informed guess as to which group is getting it. Um, and um, so you have to count and then you have to uh, train people that this is a very, very common pattern of bias that some people are seen as kind of worker bees where some people are seen as leadership materials that you have to train leadership material who you have to train for a higher position um, uh, so the ceo has to to um, there's a number of different ways to handle this and the book details them but the ceo has to get directly involved or else 
you're just going to be spending a lot of money to keep hiring women and people of color and see them walking out the door. And the same may be true with respect to age, with respect to LGBTQ, with respect to um, disability uh, or other uh, or, or social class. Joan, you mentioned houseworking there, and I want to throw the gauntlet out to our audience. So if you're the one doing this, you're not going to like this. If, if you're not, think about a meeting you've had in person, who cleans up after the meeting, who takes notes at the meeting, if there's coffee cups in the sink at the end of the day, who takes care of that in your organization? Think about it for a sec. Is it you? Do you show an example to younger people in the organization if it isn't you? These all have dramatic effects on how an organization sees the world and perceives how it should be run in the future. Joan, this is something that's hugely important, but often overlooked. This is actually what my uh, the daughter who was, as we speak, having a baby coined the, the term doing the office housework um, in a book that we wrote, we co-wrote called What Works for Women at Work. And um, the, the on our workplace experiences survey, women of all who does the office housework, women of all races do the office housework. And um, this can be who finds a time to meet in addition to the examples that you gave. We, we run a leadership academy, my institute does here in San Francisco. And every year I ask um, how many people here have planned an office party and like 70% of the women <laughs> say yes. Um, when I ask it in mixed audiences, like, you know, maybe one man has. Uh, that's another form of the office housework. Also, um, mentoring, running the diversity program. If those actually don't help your career progress um, and are undervalued, that can that's important work, but it also can be office housework. And then in every industry, there are certain tasks that are seen as not that not promotable and certain tasks that are promotable, but what never, and that varies from industry to industry, but what never varies is that women are seen as having a taste and talent for the non-promotable work. Um, and so this is really easy to find out. Um, we have an, a free open access survey that you can just send around to your company or your group and find out who's doing the office housework. And the reason it's important is Number one, it changes, it, it affects the culture, as you mentioned. Number two, it means that if women actually want to do some of the work that gains, that gets them access to promotions, they literally have to work longer hours than the men because the men aren't doing this direct. Um, uh, and it also may undercut the perceived authority of an individual woman if she does it. But if she turns it down, she may be seen as difficult a prima donna. So um, you back to the tightrope again. Chapter 12 really goes into the how. So we've talked about the issues we've touched on some of the the how to do this, how to change an organization, how to make effective change. But chapter 12 really goes deep into this. And I pulled out just one quote that maybe you might expand on you said, often we hear from managers that they keep going to the same few people with new work because those are the only people in this with the skill sets or the networks to get the job done. That's an admission that those managers are putting your company in a vulnerable position. 
If only a small circle of people have crucial, firm, specific human capital, remember, they could walk out the door tomorrow. So it's good management to insist that managers develop a broader pool of talent. It may be in the short term interest to keep going back to the same person, but it's not in the long term interest of the company. This is such an important point. Again, makes business sense. It may be in the interest of the individual manager, but it is not in the best interest of the company. What you're basically building is what, you know, we work a lot with engineers, a single point of failure. So if one person leaves, the company is has to scramble then to try to find somebody, train them. Meanwhile, they have nobody to do the function. Um, and so uh, this is just it's just another example of how everything we've seen we've talked about throughout the whole time we've been talking just makes ba- basic business sense so if you have a manager that says oh the only reason i keep giving this great you know this this promotable task um the task that leads to promotion to this one guy is that he's the one who has the skills you're here actually admitting that you don't you're not managing with the best interests of the company taken to heart um, because, you know, the one guy could leave, could leave tomorrow, could leave next week. And then where are you? So when we go, when we work with companies on um, access to opportunities, to interventions, um, and we're now launching another one, um, it's very, it's very simple. The first thing you do is you sit down with a group of savvy managers and you make a typology, make a um, a rubric of like, what are the high value tasks here? And then you just um, have your managers keep track for a few months of who's getting them. Just doing that may well help solve the problem as they see who's getting them. And actually, we're now seeking funding to do something that we did with one company, which was really cool. They built a tasking tool that interfaced with their HR system so that uh, all the managers just got automatically a, um, a, they had, they could go to a screen and see who was doing the direct reports. And they had this, this rubric of what were the promotable tasks. So it took them just a few minutes to fill in who was getting what kind of work, both the glamour work and the office housework. And, and just keeping track can be very, very clarifying, particularly if you have a you know one hour workshop saying here's this pattern of bias and here's how to fix it and joan again gives how to how to do all this how to what metrics to look for how to build a metric profiling how to write a job description what language not to use how to make neutral language everything is in the book joan one of the things that i thought was quite an important thing to just add was sometimes if somebody's assigned to a a diversity team they see it as a punishment and we had author john cotter on the show before and we i've studied his work and changed dramatically you you tip the hat to that work in your book as well because a lot of those principles of change hold true for any transformation but it's so important to have accountability but also reward people who are on these committees these minor groups throughout the organization that connect over time and create these 1% by 1% changes that become the dominoes that add together and become a wave that changes an organization. I thought maybe as a final message would share how a CEO or a leadership team can do that 
and how they can incentivize and reward these people that are on these teams because oftentimes that's a ceo doesn't even know where to start from that respect again i'm right here in the center of silicon valley i can't tell you the number of women in tech i've talked to who get handed the dei function or even all of hr and then when performance evaluation comes around they're they're the only metrics that matter are how they how they how they performed in their real job <laughs> That's actually called not valuing diversity and inclusion, not valuing diversity and inclusion. Either this is important as a business mandate, in which case it should be part of someone's job and part of what they're evaluated on, or it's not important. Very, very often this is treated as, well, you can do this on top of everything else you're doing. And um, then it doesn't really, uh, that is actually a way to, drag the careers down of the people who are doing it. Because again, you've turned it into the office housework and either they do the office housework and then they also do all of the other promotable tasks that they need to do to get promotion, in which case they literally have to work harder than anyone else. Um, Or they don't do the promotable work, in which case they may have a positive effect on your company with one basic drawback. They will leave Um, and they will leave grumpy. Uh, And, uh, you know, you'll see it on all these sites that you don't want to see your company on. So if you do think this is important work, um, and this includes not only diversity work, but also things like mentoring and running a summer program. If these are important work, they should be part of someone's job and they should be treated as promotable tasks. If something is not important and it's um, not going to lead to promotion, maybe you should consider not doing it or saying we have a certain amount of this direct work. Let's figure out a logical way to share it rather than just um, letting it fall by default, in which case I guarantee you it will fall onto the women. It happened to me actually, Joan, where I worked in a role of head of innovation and I was handed on the DEI role and I saw it as a huge bonus. I was like, this is great. And everybody else saw it as, oh my God, I can't believe he's taken the poison chalice. But for me, this is our last uh, message because I think this is so important and this is why it's so important for innovation as well is I saw it as this chance to harness a neurodiverse group of people because I, I, I saw everybody as brains rather than color or gender, or sex, whatever it was, it was just different brains that could collaborate together and bring out more brilliant ideas. And this is such an important part. And you mentioned this in the book as well, neurodiversity is a huge outcome of this work. It is because that's just another way in which people bring different life experiences, different skill sets, different dispositions. And, you know, business, business is not about the solitary genius. Um, business is teamwork. And just as you can't have a good rugby team if everybody only has the same skill, you can't run a business if everybody only has the same background, the same insights the same work skills. This business is a team sport. And so the really the strongest business case for diversity from the manager level, there's a different case for CEOs, you know, you earn more money, there's that. But for the managers, the real message is that um, 
gender diverse teams are, they perform better because they're higher in what's called collective intelligence. And collective intelligence, which is the intelligence of the team as a whole, is more important than the individual intelligence of the members on the team. And racially diverse teams actually perform better too. They consider a wider range of alternatives. They engage in less groupthink um, because they are not just reflecting the reflexive reality of a small group. So people actually have to surface their assumptions and talk them through, which leads to a more rigorous work process. And so, you know, the simple reason for caring about whether your company is more diverse is whether you care about the company, whether you care about the company's success. Wow, beautiful way to, that's like a slam dunk, Joan, way to finish today's show. For people who want to find you, Joan, and to find the magnificent wealth of resources that you offer, where can they find them? Certainly buy the book. It's a Harvard Business Review book. It's called Bias Interrupted. The Bias Interrupters website, www.biasinterrupters.org. There, as we've mentioned, there are full open source, lots of free tools there to help you interrupt bias. And then my personal webpage, I also actually do a lot of work on social class and politics and economic populism, is joancwilliams.com. You can learn more about the political work. And I've just launched a new um, website, actually, about economic populism and the role of social class dynamics in politics called Bridging the Diploma Divide in American Politics. But believe me, it's also relevant in uh, the UK. Well, it was an absolute pleasure, Joan. And I'm so grateful for you doing this while your granddaughter is on the way. And I am so grateful for the work that you've done. It's so important. And the book says it all. Author of Bias Interrupted, Creating Inclusion for Real and for Good, Joan C. Williams, thank you for joining us. It was really a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And now I'm going to go be a grandma. Before we finish, don't forget, there's a copy of for grabs of this brilliant book on the innovationshow.io newsletter, just sign up at the innovationshow.io. And I just want to thank our sponsor Zai boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and transfer funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com.